Welcome. Uh, it's good to be here with you. If you are here for the first time, we're so grateful that you're here at Two Rivers with us. Uh, we hope that you will experience the warmest of welcomes from us today uh, and have a real tangible uh, encounter with the very presence of God as we uh, worship, as we fellowship, as we get into the word this morning, as we worship in response as well. We're in a series in the book of Matthew called King Jesus. Uh, we are in Matthew chapter 21 uh, this morning, so uh, turn your Bibles to Matthew 21. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to uh, follow along with your phone. I promise not to judge you and think you're texting your roommate. I'm going to be thinking that you're digging into the Word via your digital phone, like Ryan right here on the front row. Um, I'm excited to be uh, teaching this. I will say this is a cool thing about where we're landing today that I realized probably five or six weeks ago, I, I, can, I can tell you, I didn't plan it this way. I'm not this smart. Uh, but when we started this series back in the fall in Matthew chapter 1, I assure you that I did not plan to land in Matthew 21 on Palm Sunday. But that is where we are today, and I think that's pretty, pretty cool. Um, that, that's where we're landing. It's kind of known, if you look at the top, um, if you have your Bible open and you're at Matthew 21, what does the category in bold say above Matthew 21? What, what does it say? Triumphal entry. And it is that. It is the triumphant entry of Jesus uh, into Jerusalem uh, on the week of the cross. But I will also say, uh, I would even encourage you to do this. By the way, that's not scripture. Those categories is not um, scripture. That's what uh, the translators have put in there just to kind of help us traverse through it and give some summary categories of the text. I would also say this is a humble entry. It's a triumphant entry and it's a humble entry. And we'll see that in just a minute why I'm saying that. Uh, but contextually for us to know from this moment on, from Matthew 21 on, we are in Passion Week. This is the week of the cross. Jesus is now in Jerusalem, and all of these events are leading right to the cross of Calvary. Um, uh, more context. Uh, this is happening at the very height of Jesus' fame. So multitudes of people in Galilee. Think about uh, the feeding of the 5,000 men with the five loaves and the two fish. 5,000 men plus the women and children, scholars believe 20,000 plus. Uh, Jesus with his disciples were in um, Gentile territory, the feeding of the 4,000 men plus women and children. So a lot of people that saw Jesus, experienced his miracles, his teaching, throngs of people have come down from Galilee into Jerusalem. He's at the height of his fame. Also, all this is happening just before the greatest of the Jewish annual festivals. Um, the Passion Week of Christ happens during the Jewish festival called Passover. And it is Passover week. And Jews also are flocking to Jerusalem. The law at that time said that if you lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem and you were Jewish, you had to come into Jerusalem 
for the Jewish festival. But if you lived beyond 20 miles, many, many Jewish pilgrims were coming into Jerusalem. So you have just all of these people flooding into Jerusalem uh, during the week of the Passion. When I say Passover, uh, that's the story all the way back to Moses uh, leading ancient Hebrews out of enslavery and being enslaved to Egypt. And so uh, if you know the story, uh, uh, God led them to uh, take a lamb uh, and to sacrifice the lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and paint the blood over the doorpost of their um, homes and the angel of death would pass over their home. And then after that happened, uh, Moses leads Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea and on the story goes. Um, if you're not familiar with that story of Passover, uh, write this down, Exodus chapter 12. I want to encourage you to go back and read uh, Exodus chapter 12. And so we have the triumphant entry, Jesus Passion Week, here we go. Matthew chapter 21, let's start with um, verses 1 to 8, uh, and we'll cover uh, most of the chapter together this morning. Um, Matthew 21, starting in verse 1, as they, Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus said to his disciples, let me pause here for just a minute and give you the uh, kind of the lay of the land. Uh, you have the Mount of Olives, and then down from the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley, and on, in the Kidron Valley is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. So on the Mount of Olives, and on the other side of the Mount of Olives is Bethpage and Jericho. So uh, the last week, Matthew 20, Jesus heals uh, the two blind men. One of those blind men is Bartimaeus. They're in Jericho. You move from Jericho. You're going up the Mount of Olives, Bethpage, Bethany, those towns. You get on the Mount of Olives. And when you get on the Mount of Olives, you can see the temple. It's right there. I was in Israel Three years ago, uh, Kyle Taylor and I were talking about this a few moments ago. I see my friend Greg uh, up there as well. Uh, we had the privilege of being in Israel. It was life-changing. And I will never forget the moment when we were leaving out of Jericho. It was real hot that day. And we stopped at this little gas station and got like ice cream treats. It was fantastic. Um, not what you would describe in Jericho, but we were... We're throwing down some ice cream treats. We get in our van. We go up the Mount of Olives. We park and we get out and we get to this like little landing area. And it's the first time that we had seen the temple. And it's, uh, I'll never forget it. And you, it's, I mean, the Kidron Valley, the Garden of Gethsemane is over here to the right. And the temple, I mean, it's right there. It's right there on the Mount called Zion. And so... Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. So you have the donkey and you have the baby donkey. Okay? Untie them both and bring them to me. If anyone says anything, tell them that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. 
And the disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt. They placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. Now, that's just something I don't understand how that totally worked, because you have the donkey, and then you have the baby donkey. And it says, Jesus sat on them. I'm just throwing that out there. I wish we had, like, a picture or a scene. But I think of, like, a baby donkey, and you think, like, I mean, his legs are probably, like, dragging the ground. I mean, I don't know how it works, but it's just, like, it's interesting that it's the plural. Like, it's, he sat on them. Maybe he, like, rode on the baby donkey for a little bit, and then he got on the donkey. And I, I don't really know. I'm just processing this with you right now. Okay? All right. I digress. And he sat on them, and a very large crowd, very large crowd, we talked about that already, spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Um, This little passage, usually in the context of like all the things that we're going to be reading about in the Passion Week, doesn't get primary attention in the story, but I want to point out a couple of really significant things that I think um, are important for us to grab onto. One, uh, what God prophetically speaks in his word does not come back void. Even down to minutia prophecies about Messiah coming in on a donkey from Zechariah 9.9. Jesus is showing that he is sovereign over everything that's about to occur. It is the week of the cross. Let us not think that Jesus is a victim. Jesus is sovereign. His mission from the beginning was to come as the rescuer of the world. He is in sovereign control over everything that's happening, even down to little baby donkeys. Two, we think about this donkey. Like a horse, we, like the Romans were over Israel. And when you were over a legion of soldiers in the Roman army, you came in on a war horse. And Jesus comes in on a little foal of a donkey. And the context that I want to give you for this is this. Horses that were used for war, donkeys were used for peaceful events. There's a verse that we read in Christmas, you know, every year, Christmas Eve services. And it's Isaiah 9, 6. And it says, and this is a a messianic prophecy, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of peace. Donkeys were used for peaceful events. Ephesians 2 says that Jesus himself is our peace. We have peace with God because of Jesus. He comes, the triumphant entry, the humble entry, the prince of peace. Um, Reminds you of uh, verse, sorry, I don't have it on. I do that every time. Thank you, Jack. Um, Jesus himself, Jesus emptied himself 
Philippians 2, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, Know this, know this. Jesus will come on a war horse, but it's his second coming, not his first coming. And if you want to read about that coming, Revelation 19, write that down. Go read that. It's one of my favorite passages. It's awesome. He's tatted up. I'll just say that. (laughs) Remember what Jesus had just told the disciples last week in Matthew 20, when we were looking at Matthew 20, we think about riding in on a donkey, the humble entry. Here's what Jesus had just told the disciples. Look in verse 28 uh, in Matthew 20. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. The humble way that Jesus is going to come and lay his life down for his friends. Okay, let's keep reading. Matthew 21, 9 to 11. The crowds are there. We're at the height of his popularity. People from all over Jerusalem, Gentiles, Jews, everyone. The crowds went ahead of him. To those that followed, they were shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna just means save us. Save us now. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. There's some context um, about what's happening in the verses we just read that Luke tells us about uh, that I want to add to what we just read. Luke 19, verses 39 to 40. As this is happening, as he's coming in, as the shouts of Hosanna, it, it doesn't actually say palm fronds, by the way. It just says branches, I'm not sure where that tradition came from. I mean, we could just go grab a branch and feel like, okay, that's kind of just, they were, they were just grabbing anything that they could. A king was coming, right? And so this is what was happening while all that commotion and all that Hosanna shouts. It says in Luke 19, 39 to 40, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke them. For shouting, Hosanna, son of David. Why were they demanding Jesus to rebuke the people who were shouting, Hosanna, son of David? Because they were ascribing deity to Jesus. And that was blasphemy to the Pharisees. And here's Jesus' response. Jesus' response to the Pharisees demanding that Jesus rebuke all the people who were shouting. He said, I will tell you that if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out and worship of me. But it's interesting. We see these Pharisees, rebuke them, rebuke them. And we have all these people shouting Hosanna. And if you've ever tried to figure out why on Monday, 
on Monday, Hosanna, worship. And that three days later, many of those same people from Monday to Thursday are now shouting, crucify him. What's the change? And I believe that change is about expectation. Their demands of Jesus to be and to do what they wanted him to do. They wanted a king on a war horse. And what they were getting was a king coming in humble, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And now they're shouting, three days later, crucify him. Verse 12, Jesus gets to the temple. He enters the temple. I want to, um, let me just, yeah, let me read this first. Okay. So Jesus enters the temple area and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. So in the temple, there's this large area, it's, it's for the Gentiles. And that's where a lot of the commerce would happen. It was the only place in the temple that the non-Jewish people could go to. And there's all this commerce that is happening there. So Jesus is in the area that the Gentiles were in, and certainly Jewish people were there as well. And again, huge commotion. It's Passover week. People are everywhere. So he gets to the temple, and he drives out all who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the temple, or the tables, excuse me, overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And then the blind and the lame, they came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna, the son of David. They were indignant. They were furious. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them, and he went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. So some context of what was going on here this day. Since it was founded, there were things sold uh, in the Gentile section of the temple area, and it was all to be done in honor of God and in worship of God. That was the whole purpose, in honor of God and in worship of God and the old covenant era. But it had been turned into dishonor and to deception and to spiritual abuse in the temple. Money. So every Jew had to pay a tax that had to be paid before the Passover feast. And it was a half shekel. So every Jew that was there needed to pay this Jewish tax, and it was a half shekel. But a Jewish coin was different than a Roman coin. So they had to pay their taxes to the Roman government and the Roman coins, and they had to pay their half shekel tax to the temple in a Jewish coin. 
So remember, if you were 20 miles away from the temple, you, had to, you, you were required to come. But if you were beyond 20 miles, you were, a, you were a Jewish pilgrim. And so if you've ever been out of the country before, you know that in order to exchange in that country, um, most likely you have to exchange your money, right? You have to turn your dollars in and receive the currency of whatever country you're in. That's what's happening here at the temple of all of these uh, pilgrims that are coming in. They didn't have the correct currency to change their money, and the exchangers who were in the temple were exploiting them on temple grounds. That was the first spiritual abuse. The second was with the doves, which was even more egregious than the money. So here's what, here's what we know in Leviticus. Like, here's, here's a good reason today to go read Leviticus. In Leviticus 5, in the Old Covenant era, if you were too poor to afford a lamb that you had to bring to the temple to be sacrificed for Passover, there was a provision made for you that you could bring two doves. Leviticus 5 is where it is. And the uh, temple officials habitually turned away any animal sacrifices that were not purchased inside the temple. So you're a pilgrim, you're an outsider, you live away from Jerusalem, 20, I mean 20 miles. By the way, there were no, like, they didn't have iPhones, they didn't have cars, they didn't have scooters. I mean, they just, they're walking over 20 miles beyond, I mean, from Nazareth, and they, 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 they have, I mean, just like... They're desperate, but they're there to worship God, and they can't afford a lamb, and they buy a couple of doves on the way, and then they get there, and the doves, they, those doves get rejected because they didn't buy those doves inside the temple area. By the way, um, in some digging this week um, and just learning, like, contextually, this isn't in the scripture, but just some things that I read this week. Um, a pair of doves inside the temple cost as much as 20 times as much inside the temple as it did outside the temple. By the way, the benches and the stalls that were used to hold the animals, um, that was personal property of the high priest. Spiritual abuse. People being totally, completely taken advantage of. Are you going to be fired up about that? I mean, I mean, if you find out that we own a house in Vail in the Swiss Alps, and you're like, man, that bro is a pastor with five kids, like, are you going to go, that doesn't seem so right. <laughs> is the money that I bring an offering, like, is by the way, I don't own any property other than my home here in town, but like you would question, you would question our integrity, you would question our character, you would not trust us to steward. Jesus is the God of all mercy, and he's the God of all grace, he's the God of all comfort, he's also the God of all justice, and when people are being abused, he rises up to protect them. And that's what's happening in this story. And I love the story. 
poor Jewish pilgrims are being taken advantage of by the rich religious leaders who are getting richer. And Jesus not only confronts them, but scriptures are clear that he drives them out of the temple area. So John chapter 2 is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he drives out money changers and that at the beginning of his ministry. And in John chapter 2, it says he like had a whip. That's, that's a different story than what we have in Matthew chapter 21. But I think it's important to realize that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's fighting for uh, the purity of what's happening in the temple, and he does it again at the end, and he's not going to stand for poor Jewish pilgrims being spiritually abused and taken advantage of financially. And yes, Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, humble. But let us not think that because Jesus is humble, he does not have strength as well. Like those two things are not mutually exclusive. The humility and the strength of Jesus to protect those who needed to be protected. And he confronts their character and he confronts their wallet. And if you attack a man's wallet, that's a pretty serious issue. And Jesus is pretty serious about what he is seeing in the temple. Also, I want us to note this. Um, When you see a repeated theme in Scripture, uh, pay attention. Like places uh, in the Gospels where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. Just a suggestion, like maybe pay attention to that. Here's what I want to point out, a theme that we've seen over and over and over again as Jesus is bringing his disciples to the place to be ready to take the gospel to the nations. He uses children again and again and again. Like there's something about us as adults that we have to simplify our theology to understand the desperateness that we have in God to rescue us by his grace. And he keeps talking to the disciples about the children. We saw it in Matthew 18. Remember the story, um, the, um, not a great moment for the disciples. They're arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus gets a child and he says, if you want to know about greatness in the kingdom of God, you've got to embrace humility like this child. And then in Matthew 19, uh, again, not a great moment for the disciples. They're bickering again about greatness. And he grabs a child again. He says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to the humble like these children. And then what do we see in the temple? This example of children again. And he says, he makes an example of children who are trusting him after rebuking those who don't trust him. I I just, I picture this scene, all these kids, faith like a child, right? He goes in the temple and they just keep, I mean, they just, they just keep shouting over and over and over again. And Jesus used them as an example. I think last week's big point applies here as well. Spiritual breakthrough in our lives happens as we see our utter dependence upon God. We have to humble ourselves to receive the grace of Jesus. Okay, so day one in Jerusalem, that was eventful. That was an eventful day. And in verse 17, it says, um, 
he left them, he left the temple, and he went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Um, Bible trivia. What good friends live in Bethany? Two sisters and a brother. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, right? Bethany. Can we, um, here's a map. Let's look at this map. So Bethany, this side of Mount of Olives, it's about two miles from Bethany into to the temple. And so you go up to the Mount of Olives, and then you go down the Kidron Valley. You can see where the Garden of Gethsemane is, and then up to the Temple Mount. And so they leave the temple. They go back through Bethpage and over to Bethany. I'm not sure if they were spending the night at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home, but I think it's probably likely. Uh, I certainly believe they were there ministering to Jesus uh, and his disciples. Um, And so uh, that's where they go and spend the night. And so uh, that's where they are, Bethany. I'm going to bring that map up in just a minute. Um, But here's the next thing. This is day two. Day two in Jerusalem. And this is an interesting story. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, so they're leaving, they're leaving Bethany, and they're coming back to the city. So they're coming up to the Mount of Olives, and that's what's happening, okay? And he's hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. And we just go, what is that? Is Jesus just having a bad day? You know, like, no fruit on the tree. You know, it's like the Emperor Palpatine or something, you know, from Star Wars. You're just like, what is going on here? And the disciples see it. And they're as as confused as you are right now. And they see this thing happening. And they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and you do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. All right, let's talk about this for a minute. Back to Jerusalem. Standing on the Mount of Olives. Hungry, fig tree leaves. When a fig tree has leaves, it has figs. So let's just call this fig tree a hypocritical fig tree. Because when a fig tree literally has leaves, it has figs, but this fig tree has no leaves. And I'm kind of being silly, but also serious. It was a hypocritical fig tree. Jesus is using a fig tree to teach. He's the master teacher. And he needs to teach the disciples something really, really important. He's standing on the Temple Mount, or he's standing um, on the Mount of Olives. So he's standing. Where's my little... Is this working? Come on, baby. Talk to me. All right, there we go. See there? He's right there. He's right there. 
And when he says, when he's standing there and he goes, um, you can say to this mountain, well, what, what mountain? What, what mountain? Well, they're standing on the Mount of Olives and they're looking out at Mount Zion. What, what is on top of Mount Zion? The temple. What did Jesus come to inaugurate? The new covenant of his grace. And by his blood, by his sacrifice on the cross, it's Holy Week, by the way, we're two or three days away. By his blood, he is going to inaugurate the new covenant of grace. What is the symbol of the old covenant? The temple. The old covenant of what? The old covenant of law. And Jesus is going to use this fig tree, the hypocritical fig tree. What did they experience the day before in the temple? The hypocrisy of the religious leaders and the deception of religion and the oppression of religion and how people were being spiritually abused. Mount Zion, the Temple Mount, represents the old covenant of law. It's days from the cross in which Jesus' death for us in our place. And his death will end the old covenant sacrificial systems of the law. So in the old covenant systems, priests would have to, every day, every day they're offering, they're offering sacrifices to give a covering of sin for Israel. Every day, every day, every day. Once a year is the Passover where they bring in their perfect lamb. But the language is a covering for sin. What did John the Baptist, when he was heralding Christ, he said, behold the lamb of God, the lamb of God, Passover feast. Lambs, blood, doorposts of your heart, right? Passover, it's Passover now. Do you think that just... You think that just happened by chance, by the way, that Jesus would come to Calvary on the Passover? No, no, this is providential. This is the providence of God. This is the sovereignty of God. It's incredible. It's incredible. And he knows he's going to the cross, and he knows that when Jesus dies on the cross, it is once for all. All, one time, one offering, no more sacrifices. The old covenant sacrificial system is going away. And Jesus is inaugurating the new covenant of his grace. Uh, in Hebrews 10, um, you can write this down. Uh, Hebrews 10, 1 to 14. I'm not going to read these verses, uh, but it talks about Jesus offering one sacrifice, the phrase in verse 10, Hebrews 10, 10, is once for all. One sacrifice, one time for all people. And then it says in verse 12 that after the sacrifice of Jesus, he sat down. And the author of Hebrews is talking about how the priests, they get up every day, daily, they're offering sacrifice, they're doing the religion we're doing the religion. We're doing the religion every day. And Jesus sacrificed one time, once for all, and then he sat down. Why does he sit down? Because the work is done. 
one sacrifice for all time, for all people. What did Jesus say on the cross of Calvary? It is finished. It is finished. No more sacrifices. I am the sacrifice. One time for all. This is Hebrews 8.13. By calling this covenant new, the new covenant of the grace that was inaugurated by the blood of Jesus, by calling this new covenant, or this covenant new, he has made the first one. You tell me what that word says. Go back to the fig tree. Go back to the story. And he says, this mountain, all those sacrifices, you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. It is finished. It is done. One sacrifice for all time, the old covenant, all that's done. And if you believe, if you believe, you will receive. Old covenant, do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. New covenant, believe, receive. That's what's happening with this fig tree. We are righteous by our faith. Righteous by our faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection for us. Is this good news? It is good news. So I'm teaching and now I'm preaching. It's good news. We don't have to come under those systems anymore. Jesus, his grace is enough for you for all time. Me, you, and everyone else. By the way, thinking about the temple, when Jesus said, cast into the sea, this is what he said a couple chapters later, three chapters later, um, Matthew 24, 1 and 2, Jesus left the temple, was walking away with his disciples, and they came up to him, and they call his attention to its buildings. Jesus, these buildings. And by the way, like the the temple's been decimated, but the, the foundation stones are still there, and you're standing there, like at the wailing wall, and you're just like, oh my gosh, up to the temple mount, which is really flat. I mean, these stones are gargantuan. But this was even before Rome comes in in AD 70 and levels the whole thing, which is what Jesus prophetically is saying in Matthew 24. They came up to him, they called attention to his buildings. Verse 2, Jesus says, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another Everyone will be thrown down. And that happened in AD 70 when Nero came in and bulldozed the entire city of Jerusalem. So, day two, temple. Religious leaders are waiting. It's become evident as we've read through the gospel that every pious and religious leader, they're extremely offended at Jesus. And they are offended at who he claims to be and what he calls them to, which is to believe in, to repent, and to believe in him. And so they challenge him. Matthew 21. They lay in wait as we continue to work through the text. Jesus enters the temple courts, day two. This is after the fig tree thing and what he's teaching the disciples. And he was teaching, and the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked 
And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I, I will also ask you one question. And if you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Which I think is a, that's an awesome strategy, by the way. Like, you ever felt pinned to the wall, right? Like, you're talking, here's a question for you. Well, okay. Well, here's a question for you. <laughs> right? This master teacher, he puts it back on them. And he says, if you answer me, I'll tell you about what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. John the Baptist. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? And so they discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, then we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answer, they get together, and they have all this conversation. They go back to Jesus and go, we don't know. We don't know the answer to your question. Such a weak-minded, religious, legalist. And then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Neither will I tell you by what authority. And then he says, a parable. Here's a parable. So what do you think? There was a man who had two sons, and he went to the first son, and he said, son, go to work today in the vineyard. I will not, the son answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness. John, the herald of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. Change your mind. Messiah is here. That was the baptism of John. And he said, he came to show you the way of righteousness, righteousness by what you believe and what you receive, not by what you do. And you did not believe him. You did not repent. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and you did not believe. And I read this and I go, man, I wish that we could feel um, um, more of the weightiness of the scandal of grace in this statement. That Jesus will look to the chief priest and the scribes who are doing all the religion and he looks at them and he says, this is how scandalous my grace is. He goes, tax collectors and prostitutes are ahead of you because they believe and they have received. Man, will you 
when you go all in on religion, when you go all in on that, and you're good at it, and people give you little like medallions and things to like hang on your attire, and you like walk around so people can see how religious you are and how holy you are, and you get, and because of that position of influence, you can manipulate people to do what you tell. You can, you can shame them and you can create fear in them. And they will do what you tell them to do because you are the best at doing all the religion. Man, it, when you have that kind of position and you have that kind of wealth and you have that kind of influence, it's tough to repent. And I would say that kind, that kind of religion is pretty blind. You know this phrase, pride goes before the fall. You know that. It's in, it's in Proverbs 16. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to share the plunder with the proud. Whoever gives heed to instruction prospers, and blessed is he who trusts who trusts in the Lord. What does Jesus say in Matthew 21? Who trusts in the Lord? You did not repent and believe. Who believed? The tax collectors. The betrayers. The ones who were stealing from the poor and buying mountain cabins on the backs of the oppressed and the poor. And so Jesus, knowing that they have no intention of submitting to him, will not play their games. He turns their tables over and he drives them out to make way for those who want to receive what he offers, the grace of salvation in the new covenant and the grace of a transformed life. I just... This is scandalous. This is scandalous. I read a um, commentary this week, and it made this statement. Gentiles, in particular, were hindered by temple commerce. Like, certainly, there were poor Jewish pilgrims who were totally being taken advantage of. But this commentator says that it was even worse for the Gentiles because they weren't Jewish. And Jesus, uh, that's, not, that's not happening here. I will make a way for everyone who wants to be redeemed, reconciled, and restored. Anyone, anyone who believes in me will be reconciled with the Father. Even me, even you. But let us not be blinded by our religion. There's an old hymn I thought of it the last service, it's not in my notes, and it just, I don't remember if I read this growing up in a traditional church, or I have no idea, I need to look it up, but it just like literally came to mind right in this moment, last service, and it just says, cast, cast your deadly doing down, lay it down at Jesus' feet, trust in him and him alone. And stand gloriously complete.
to wrap up the chapter. Worship team, you can come back up and we'll close here. There's a parable to read. I encourage you to read this later when you get home. I just want to read the end, the end of the chapter. Jesus makes a way for everyone who desires to receive it, and he drives out anyone who seeks to hinder his scandalous grace. He's that serious about his grace. Verse 42 to 46, and then we'll worship together. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scripture, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. And the Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes from Psalm 118. Therefore, Jesus said, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its Fruit. Remember the hypocritical fig tree. It will be given to the tax collectors and the, and the prostitutes and people who believe and receive, and they will produce its fruit because grace transforms our lives and produces the fruit of the Holy Spirit in us. And he who falls on this stone, on the cornerstone, on Jesus, will be broken to pieces. But he on whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priest and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Jesus is serious about the scandal of his grace. And the humble receive its message and find salvation and transformation. Let's pray together. Lord, the scandal of your grace, even to us, even to me, we want to cast down our deadly religious doing and embrace the simplicity and the beauty and the majesty that your grace is unmerited, unearned favor, the unconditional love of God for us. We declare and cry out that your grace is amazing. So give us more revelation today, I pray in Jesus' name.